My Crime Liberty Show, with me, Swinton Dobson, and him, Tim Patton. Today we're joined by Keith Preston to discuss Our Street Gangs States. Tim. Whitney Webb uh, has written a very well-researched, dense book, and one of the points she made uh, is that the common uh, street gangs historically in the United States, um, and of course the more organized crime families and so forth in the United States, have a relationship with Israeli, British, and of course American deep state slash intelligence agencies. It's basically mainstream history that uh, certain families have helped United States in uh, World War II, and then she documents that as well. Um, and the sort of relationship between organized crime and uh, street gangs and you know dissident political movements is, is well documented. Uh, you, know, you know, Stalin, for example, was a street gang fighter, as everyone knows. Not a street gang fighter, but affiliated with one. And certain libertarian and Marxist intellectuals have praised them. Chris Cretone, a kind of tangy Marxist I've followed, uh, he said that, you know, you know, Tony Soprano is a moderate, and like the during the COVID, one of the problems was it disrupted the uh, uh, the functioning of the gangs. So that was one of the reasons for crime and so forth. And even right wing libertarians like Lou Rockwell have praised organized crimes, uh, almost saying that they kept the streets better in in, in in better shape than the police. Peter Zian, who as Keith has mentioned before, would talk about the Mexican street gangs and say that their their model, uh, of the previous ones not necessarily new ones necessarily, was the sort of Japanese families where they, they wouldn't shoot the old lady. They would, uh, they were, they're basically like very well-organized businesses almost, um, bordering on business, which is what, which is which partly what the topic I want to get into today. Um, because, because on the one hand, organized crimes, and Thaddeus Russell would make this point in his book, Renegade History of the United States, as well as others, said organized crimes does provide a certain goods that, that the state formally out, uh, outlaws, so like liquor during prohibition and various other things. And today, of course, uh, uh, illegal drug, illegal drugs, and so forth um, in the United States. Um, but it also provides things like prostitution. It also provides things like uh, killing. And then, of course, the deep state. And you get in this sort of with Lex Friedman had an interview with a uh, drug runner uh, who was pardoned, if I recall correctly. Um, and he was accusing Bill Clinton of getting his start there. So there is a sort of relationship between the two things um, here. You know, of course, you have the drug lords funded by the CIA um, in the uh, Nicaragua and so forth. So there is an obvious relationship here. Um, so, Keith, my question for you is, what should dissident movements broadly, libertarians, socialists, anarchists, and so forth, think of organized crime um, and organized crime families there are documented relationships with them, them doing the dirty work. It's not just Whitney Webb who's made that point. I think other mainstream historians have made that point. Um, and some of the in- dissidents themselves have been funded at times by them, like Stalin, for example, and certain uh, Marxist movements have clearly certain ties to them. But then also, they, they, at t- some, some of these organizations almost resemble like corporations even, like sort of quote-unquote normal corporations uh, in the mod- in, in in the modern parlance, and I think that's sort of, you know, certain of the Asian type organized crimes clearly have their relationship. So, Keith, what 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 would, what is your overall opinion on on the organizations, and how should we think about it, them? Thanks for being on here, and as always, and nice talking to you. Well, um, I think that there's a number of different angles we could approach this from. I, I guess I would start by saying that. 
my approach to social, the social sciences, you know, as a social sociologist and historian and political scientist, uh, is largely done through the uh, lens of elite theory. That is power elite theory. You know, there's there's different branches of elite theory. Uh, Left wing elite theory tends to focus more on who the power elite in a society actually are. You know, is it the capitalist? Is it the government bureaucrats? Whatever. Um, right wing elite theory tends to focus more on well, what do elites actually do? How do elites actually function? Uh, an example would be the Italian elite theorists like Mosca and um, Pareto and, and Robert Michaels and some of those people. Um, but th the core theme through all of this is that societies tend to be organized into um, stratified hierarchical systems that are kind of like pyramids. And any basic level social scientist, regardless of their political affiliation, would, would tell you this. Um, and then power tends to be all spread out through different centers of power within elites, like elites within a society tend to be layered into hierarchical structures of their own. And then you have little different centers of power that uh, in which different types of elites are concentrated. Uh, for instance, um, in a traditional medieval feudal type of society, you might have the monarchy, you might have the hereditary aristocracy, you might have the church, you might have the merchant guilds, you might have, uh, you know, any number of things, some sort of military order or whatever. Uh, and in, in a modern society, like say the United States, you might have the actual political government, you know, the president, the politicians, and, and, and attached to that, you have the bureaucracy, what's commonly called the administrative state. You've also got the military uh, you know, the institutions that exist to impose force. You've got the, the deep state that operates within the, um, within the political government as sort of a set of permanent bodies whose overall function is to uh, maintain the interest of the state in a way that transcends the coming and going of personnel. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the economic elites, you've got the corporate elite, you've got the uh, banking and financial elites, the business elite. And then that's spread out into different sectors. You've got the technological sector, the manufacturing sector, the retail sector, you know, um, uh, all of that. You've also got the cultural institutions. You've got the, the cultural institutions that disseminate the dominant values in the wider society. In an older society, it might be something like the church or maybe in Saudi Arabia it would be the Wahhabi or Salafi or whatever clerics. In a, in a country like the United States or a Western country, it would be the educational system, the universities, the media, uh, as well as major foundations, think tanks, uh, NGOs, all of these different kinds of uh, organizations. And then you also have what are commonly called interest groups. And then these exist at multiple levels as well. You know, that's, uh, there could be, you know, clerical oligarchs like uh, televangelists or, you know, you, or uh, well-organized political interest groups like the environmentalists or something of that nature. And then when it comes to organized crime, you have, you have that within organized crime as well. Like, like the, the upper strata of organized crime is the power elite within the field of, uh, 
crime, just like you have a power elite in the formal political government and within the military and within the above ground economy and then the various sectors of the economy and then the cultural institutions and all of that. We've got a power elite within the criminal sector. And just like the, the other um, sectors of the power elite inter, intersect with each other, the leadership of the military intersects with the leadership of the political government, which intersects with the leadership of the corporate class, which intersects with the leadership of the financial class, which um, intersects with the leadership of, say, the universities and the media and all of that. Well, the leadership of crime, organized crime, um, intersects with all of this as well. So there's an interlocking relationship between organized crime and what are considered legitimate or above ground institutions. It's simply that organized crime is engaged in activity that has been formally prohibited by the wider body of institutions. But you also have sectors of organized crime that are allowed to engage in some of these activities so long as they are uh, you know, paying tribute or greasing the palms of the right people or serving a particular political function. Uh, at the same time, say the, the remainder of the state may move to suppress elements of organized crime, such as those that fall out of favor with a more powerful faction within organized crime or some other sector of, of the wider uh, body of elites or the wider system of statecraft. Uh, so organized crime is just another institution. It's just like church. It's just like the media. It's just like education or business or labor unions or any of that. It's just one of many social institutions that, like I said, is part of this wider pyramid that societies tend to be organized into in this wider system of stratification with these different poles of power that exist in, in different societies. So you sort of answered my first question here um, with, um, are they, are, do they prop up failed states or weak states? And in certain areas, do they become the uh, to become the state, so to speak. So examples might include Libya, examples might include Somalia, examples might include Mexico, certain of the other um, uh, Latin and South American countries. Do organized crime and crime families uh, prop up or in some cases become the state? And what is the exact situation going on in uh, uh, Mexico here? Peter Zian has talked about it. I've seen a few other commentators talking about that. That there's a there's a risk that they 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 almost be are are going to become in certain areas the de facto quote unquote legitimate state, which to me as something someone who is on a theoretical level again I don't do much practical thing but a theoretical level I think of myself as libertarian anarchist, you know it's kind it's kind of a strange thing when you see this sort of seemingly outlawed political movement because a gang would be a kind of ultimately you know outlawed political movement it's not just a political party it's a it's a it's a kind of whole apparatus of different things. Uh, what what is your what is your take on that? And you know, you know, do they exactly prop up these failed states? Are they necessary in certain ways in those uh, societies here, Keith? Yeah, um, all of those are really interesting questions. Uh, I guess the first question you would have to ask is, what is a state? What is a government? Uh, and there are different definitions of that. Political scientists don't really agree on what the definition of a state is. Uh, Max Weber said that a state is an institution that is capable of exercising a monopoly on violence within a particular territory. 
uh, meaning that the state can do things involving violence that other people couldn't do. Uh, you know, the state can make war, the state can collect taxes, the state can conscript soldiers, the state can arrest and punish people who break laws. Uh, other institutions or individuals don't really have that power. Uh, if they try to do things like that, then they're simply considered thieves or enslavers or, or criminals or something like that. A broader definition of the state might be something like a centralized organization that is able to uh, impose uh, rules over a particular set of people within a particular geographical environment. Um, you know, that that's, I suppose, a wider definition of a state, you know, uh, you know, any, any, any group that has territory with rules and some kind of organizational method of enforcing them would be considered a state. Uh, so, yeah, in situations around the world where you have failed states, what are commonly called failed states, and that is a system where or situation where uh, a, an existing government has collapsed and no, or no government has come along and been able to maintain a monopoly on violence or create what is recognized as a legitimate state system. In failed states, what you typically have is uh, essentially what amounts to gang warfare between organized groups. Um, we've seen that, for example, in a number of African countries, places like Somalia, the Sudan, some of those places. What will happen is that the formal political government collapses or has no power so you have different groups, usually ethnic tribes or religious communities that are organized into militias of their own, and, and they become the de facto government of whatever territory they manage to dominate. Uh, and they have their own law or rules or methods of settling disputes, a, a de facto court system or, you know, something like that. Uh, in some cases, you find situations where revolutionary organizations manage to gain control of a particular geographical area, but they're not really considered a state because they're not recognized as an independent country. Um, for instance, in, in southern uh, Mexico, in the uh, Chiapas region, uh, there's this group called the Zapatistas that are uh, hero considered heroes to the left. I don't know about the right, but uh, they are, have essentially gotten control of a substantial portion of southern Mexico, and they, they're not considered an independent country, but they essentially run that region of Mexico because they just simply have more power than any other group. Um, during the Civil War in Peru in the 1980s, the Shining Path, which was a Maoist insurgent group, they gained control over a substantial portion of Peru to the point where they were the de facto government of that region, uh, even if they weren't recognized by that. I mean, the international, you know, the so-called international community, the United Nations and all of that, they didn't recognize them as, as a government, but they essentially were in terms of their, uh, in terms of their, their overall functions. Uh, in in Colombia, uh, during the same period, there was a civil war where there was a group called the uh, FM, uh, not the FMLN, the, uh, the FARC, the Armed Forces of the Colombian Revolution. Uh, and they, they did the same thing. They had control over, I think at one point, about 40% of Colombia. So they were the de facto government. Um, 
in, in Lebanon, in southern Lebanon, there's the group called the Hezbollah, which uh, essentially is the government of South Lebanon. Uh, they have more military capabilities than the um, Lebanese defense, national defense forces. Um, so they, they are, you know, a, a non-state entity that functions as a state. And organized crime can function in that way as well. Uh, talking about Mexico, uh, the issue in Mexico is that you have uh, wars going on between rival drug cartels over who's going to control the, the drug trade. And, it, and it's no different from the things that have happened in American cities where you have rivalries between these street gangs like the Bloods and the Crips and Latin Kings and gangster disciples. There's a lot of them. Um, they'll, they'll fight over who's going to sell heroin or crack or methamphetamine or fentanyl or whatever in a particular neighborhood. You know, same thing with these outlaw motorcycle clubs, the Hells Angels and, and Mongols and stuff like that. You know, they'll fight over who's going to sell methamphetamine in a particular city or town or region. Or, and, uh, and of course, the mafia, the, the, the famous Italian mafia, uh, Al Capone and, and all of that, or the five families of New York, the Gambinos and uh, Bonanos and, and all of that. They, uh, you know, they'll fight over, you know, who's going to control extortion rackets in a particular territory or, you know, back in the days of alcohol prohibition, they'd fight over who's going to monopolize or control the uh, alcohol trade. So these organizations do function as de facto states. Like, you know, being an anarchist myself, um, I, I would say that what is the state, I would answer the question of what is the state? And I would say, well, what do states do? They try to monopolize territory. They try to monopolize resources within that territory. They try to protect an artificially privileged elite, not a meritocratic elite, but an artificially privileged elite. They try to export, export, uh, ex exploit their own subjects. They try to maintain a, um, they, they try to expand their own realm of power and influence. And they also maintain a self-legitimating ideological superstructure, just like states have a, a self-legitimating ideology. You know, in, in traditional America, it was the American civil religion that Robert Bella talked about. Uh, now it's more become this woke stuff. You know, in a place like Saudi Arabia, it would be Wahhabism. You know, I guess in China, it's, you know, socialism with Chinese characteristics or, you know, Confucianized Maoism or, or whatever. But all, you know, states have a self-legitimating ideology, and so do organized crime. Uh, you know, if you listen to former mafia men talk about how they joined the mafia, you know, they go through a ceremony, they, you know, they prick your finger and you're, um, you swear a blood oath to the, to the crime family or whatever. Um, you know, some of the uh, gangs, like in Latin America, for example, you have uh, gangs that have their own saints, you know, because it's a Catholic culture, they'll adopt saints uh, as their own patron saint for their gang or whatever. Um, so, so just like states, uh, gangs and organized crime will have a self-legitimating ideological superstructure. Um, and so I think we can understand gangs as the equivalent of states within states or perhaps counter states or perhaps statists in waiting or aspiring states, but they haven't really achieved the level of being a state. 
because they haven't yet achieved a monopoly on violence. I think to really become a state, they would have to achieve a monopoly of violence in a way that's perceived of as legitimate by most people. Like, of course, now that gets into the question of what is political legitimacy? What makes a state legitimate? I guess anarchists would say nothing makes a state legitimate. But in a functional sense, in in an instrumental sense, I tend to think Carl Schmitt had the best definition of of legitimacy, and that is acclamation. Uh, A state is legitimate if the people like it or support it. Or uh, in the Renaissance era, there was a a writer, a French writer named, I think he was French, named uh, Edine de la Bautaille. He had an essay called Discourse on Voluntary Servitude. And he argued that the reason states have power is because the people acquiesce. They just go along to get along. They do what the state does for the sake of their own, or they do what the state says for the sake of their own protection or, uh, you know, to keep themselves out of trouble or or for other advantages for for doing so. So ultimately, I think both of these guys are right, Schmidt and Bautai, um, you know, the legitimacy of a state, or really not just a state, any any kind of social system or political system, um, is based on the acclamation, the degree to which its subjects and participants approve of it or affirm it, and acquiescence, the degree to which the subjects, participants, citizens, whatever, go along to get along, uh, acquiesce to you know the norms of the particular entity in question. Um, and of course, within uh, within gangs, you certainly find that you know you f- you certainly find acclamation or acquiescence, uh, and because gangs don't have or the mafia or whatever they don't have the acquiescence of the wider population, you know, or they don't have the acclamation of the wider population. They they haven't really achieved uh, the level of legitimacy that a state tends to have. Uh, most most political thinkers, Schmidt included, as well as others, uh, I guess all non-anarchists, think the state is necessary. Uh, Chris Catron, the Marxist, made a comment. He said that in many ways that states that organize crime is basically uh, a corresponding underworld that's existed basically since what we know as industrial capitalism. I know people like Murray Rothbard and Lou Rockwell wouldn't call that pure capitalism, but it, uh, this basically the, the order since the, the 1830s in the United States and the, France, England, and so forth, you get it basically fairly common. Um, and if anything, the worst violence, and this is, what, this is a strange point, but the worst violence is when the state tries to clamp down on, uh, you, you could argue that the, it's, the, the, for the, the quote-unquote normal person, it's almost like the, if you just sort of let it exist, that the sort of moderates exist rather than the extremists exist, in a strange sense, might be the best two worlds. Libertarians have commonly made the, the claim that you shouldn't give organized crime a, a which is like outlawing uh, drugs and stuff like that, one of the default things. But that goes back to the uh, whole uh, necessity here. Um, do you think do you think that organized crime is a, in some sense, um, uh, almost, uh, I wouldn't say necessary, but it almost a given um, in a certain type of society at a certain time period? Or is that um, and do you think efforts to clamp it out um, um, by, so, so to speak, legitimate states like the United States, like Japan, like um, France, um, when they, do you think that has made the intensification of the state uh, of the, uh, uh, that I think is a fairly commonplace thing. I mean, you get all these alphabet soups, many of them go after 
or perceived purpose, ATF, for example, um, do you think has intensified the sort of quote existing normal state? And do you think they are, to some extent, uh, I don't know if you say necessary, but just sort of uh, inevitable? Because they, there is an underclass that exists, and they that their primary recruiting pulse, recruiting area seems to be the very underclass of the, so to speak, legitimate size. What would you make of that kind of analysis, Keith? Well, you know, organized crime is, is really nothing more than collectives of people who break whatever rules are established by the dominant power structure, you know, whatever that may be. Uh, for instance, in the hardline Stalinist countries, um, the possession of religious artifacts was at times illegal, like a crucifix or a Bible or something like that. So members of organized crime in those particular societies, they would turn selling Bibles into a lucrative uh, criminal enterprise um, or, or selling Korans or something like that. Uh, so that's all organized crime is. It's people who are breaking the rules on, on a collective basis of whatever... Um, dominant system of power exists in the particular society they're in. Uh, so organized crime could be anything. Um, and as long, I, I would imagine as long as there have been human uh, societies with groups holding power, there have been some kind of organized crime. You know, you probably saw those in prehistoric tribes and, you know, the, among the Neanderthals and all kinds of things. Um, but um, so that's ultimately what organized crime is. Uh, now, the question is, you know, you can approve or disapprove of an existing state attempting to suppress certain activities. Um, but ultimately, when a state tries to suppress activities, there's going to be people who do it anyway. And there's going to be people who do it uh, on an organized collective basis. The issue is the more things the, the state tries to suppress, the more you're going to see organized crime proliferate. Um, because uh, there's going to be a much larger black market for all of the products and services and activities that the state is trying to uh, eliminate. Um, drugs is an obvious example in, in modern societies. That's probably one of the most prominent example, but there's plenty of other things as well. Uh, and there have been other things in, in past societies that, that we could point to. Uh, also, that gets, this gets back to the interlocking relationship between the elite of organized crime and the elite of other institutions. Uh, the way drug trafficking, for example, works is that it's not simply that people are trafficking drugs and the existing states are trying to suppress them. Usually the elite of the drug trafficking world has some kind of relationship with the state. Uh, sometimes you'll have rivalries among drug traffickers. Uh, some, some of the drug traffickers will be aligned with uh, other bodies of the state, perhaps other drug traffickers will be lined with other uh, bodies of the state. Uh, for instance, many years ago in the city that I live in, we had a situation where there was a police chief who was aligned with one of the street gangs based in some of the housing projects uh, against other street gangs. So what he was doing uh, was, you know, basically looking the other way while his, his uh, the gang that he was aligned with was breaking laws. Uh, but at the same time, his department was going out and arresting people from the other gangs that were impeding upon the uh, business interest of this one gang that he was aligned with. Uh, and, and it works like that, you know, at every level and, and in every country, in every society to some degree. 
uh, you know, I mean, with varying degrees of extremes, of course. But uh, so there's a, there's this interlocking relationship between organized crime and institutions. Um, also, we have to consider the ways in which organized crime overlaps with tribal warfare. Uh, again, uh, we can point to something like drugs. All right. Well, all drug prohibition is is a dominant collection of tribes that have as their drugs of choice things like alcohol, tobacco, perhaps these prescription drugs, you know, caffeine, you know, whatever else. You know, dominant tribes have their drugs of choice. They're trying to suppress other tribes that have other drugs of choice, you know, in past times, marijuana, that's starting to change a bit, you know, heroin, opiate-derived drugs, whatever, right? Uh, often, drug prohibition overlaps with other forms of tribal conflict. For example, if you look at the history of drug prohibition in the United States, uh, it often overlapped with ethnic conflict or with religious conflict. So, um, in a situation like that, you know, the organized crime is a, is a manifestation of tribal warfare. You know, you have different tribes that are war, at war with each other within a particular society, within a particular state system. Some tribes are dominant within a state system. Some are, some are, are dominant within an, uh, an organized crime system. The organized crime system and the state system intersect in various ways that I've pointed out as well. Uh, and, and it's not just with drugs. I mean, it's, it's plenty of things. Uh, you know, they're, 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 this is true of many different activities. Uh, so uh, there's, there's a great deal of complexity to these things. I guess we're half, about halfway in here, um, out half an hour in here. Uh, in terms of like, uh, do they provide superior service? If, you know, if you want to unbundle the state, so to speak, uh, and its various things it does, um, and some of it you could say are just outright criminal in the natural law or some sort of Christian ethical anarchist position. You could just say that certain things the state does is just basically kidnapping with a badge and so forth. Um, but in some cases, you might argue, and in certain areas, this might be the case. You know, one of the things that a number of commentators, including Peter Hitchens, has pointed out is you know, a lot of Western leaders like to call Putin a thug. And in a certain sense, it's, it's, it's technically correct because the state, um, the state over there did emerge in the in the in the big vacuum after the collapse of the existing regime in the in the 90s, um, in a sense it did, um, and you could argue that like the current st certain states are just, um, you know, I'm not I'm not I'm not saying this in the moralistic sense at all. I'm just saying that in a technical sense, you could argue that there are certain black market tendencies, weapons traders, and so forth um, that have developed, and they sort of just became um, the state. But as also Peter Hitchens would point out, who's gets accused of being a Russian sympathizer, you know, the alternative is is to Putin is probably much, much worse or something like that. Um, what do you make of those kind of analysis here? Like in certain areas, like, it, you know, most mainstream political theorists, not yourself, not included, not that you're mainstream, um, seem to think states are necessary, whether or necessary good or necessary evil is a good question. Um, but in certain areas, and I could also argue the Taliban in some sense, or it has its roots in um, organized crime. You could even say that maybe even the Communist Party of China, China, in a certain sense, if you go far enough back, uh, I don't know the history that well for those institutions, but I know more about Russia here. Um, but there is some sort of link here. I mean, and like, and, and the corporations there, so to speak, are, 
you know, but again, I'm not, I, I know the same tendencies exist in the United States. The United States has also an ugly sort of underbelly. I'm not trying to like prop up the United States or pick on Russia in that sense here. What would you make on that? Like, um, or do they provide superior services than, so to speak, certain democratic states? Or because, you know, I think we did episodes with you and Thomas Hobbes. And it seems like in certain areas, if there's enough disputes, it just, it's just, it's civil war or it's bad. It's sort of very bad anarchy here. Uh, at least you have some kind of quote unquote peace. Or do you think that th- the price of it isn't, isn't worth it here? Um, Keith, any thoughts on that kind of question slash comment here uh, regarding to Russia or to, of course, to other states as well? Well, someone like Peter Hitchens, Peter Hitchens is a traditional conservative, which means that he's probably very influenced by the think, thinking of Hobbes, or at least implicitly. Uh, and what Hobbes believed, of course, was that uh, if human beings are in a state of nature, all you're going to have is just ongoing civil war and glorified gang warfare. So you need a sovereign, you know, somebody or some individual or group that has absolute power, a monopoly on violence in order to suppress the chaos associated with civil conflict so that civilization can exist. Um, that's basically, you know, the Hobbesian viewpoint. Many conservatives believe that. And you, you, certainly, I think you could comp- apply that theory to a place like Russia with some degree of seriousness, because I do think it's true that if Russia in its present form simply split apart into multiple countries, what would happen to the nuclear weapons that are in the possession of the Russian government? They have more nuclear weapons than any other country in the world. And if Russia were to just simply collapse and become a failed state, like say Somalia or Libya or somewhere like that, what would happen to all these nukes? Who would get them? Uh, So that would be a rather serious issue. Uh, So in that sense, you could argue that a Hobbesian Leviathan may have certain benefits that, uh, say, uh, a state of nature would not have. Uh, Another illustration might be uh, the former regime in Iraq, the regime of Saddam Hussein, the Ba'athist regime. I remember in the buildup to the Iraq War, the second Iraq War in 2003, you know, I knew people who had neoconish leanings, and they were saying, isn't it wonderful that we're going to make... Iraq into a democracy, you know, as if, you know, as if all it took to make Iraq into Sweden would be an invasion by the United States. And I I used to say then, well, if you get rid of Saddam Hussein, what you're going to be faced with is an insurgency by all of these uh, Takfiri elements that have been suppressed by the Ba'athist regime. And that's exactly what happened. That's how we got ISIS and, and other similar groups. Um, and then I, and people used to say, well, we'll, we'll have democracy in Iraq. And I'm like, well, if you have uh, an elected parliamentary state in Iraq, what you'll get is a Shia majority state that will be pro-Iranian. Uh, and that's exactly what happened when that model of government was introduced in Iraq. So um, the, the Hobbesian argument has you know, validity. The question is, at what cost? You know, at what cost do you want to have a Leviathan or sovereign that's able to merely keep order to prevent chaos? You know, where, 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 when does, when does there become too much order? You know, that's really uh, obviously an important question. It's one that 
uh, political theorists debate among themselves. Modern, modern liberal theory, of course, as we know, is based on the idea, well, okay, you start with Hobbes's presupposition that society is a social contract. You know, you need a, a sovereign and then, you know, you, and then by accepting the benefits of living in civilization, by implication, you form a contract with the sovereign to obey whatever rules exist in a particular society. And then now the obvious problem with that is, well, what if the, the ruler of your particular society is Saddam Hussein or is Adolf Hitler or is Joseph Stalin? And then you have you know liberals like Locke and Rousseau and some of these other people who talked about the natural rights of man and well the sovereign's got to respect the natural rights and he's got to respect consent of the governed and you know whether any actual state works like that is is a different question but that's modern liberal theory in a nutshell um, and I I yeah I don't I don't think there's really any answer to these questions. Uh, you know, what, what I believe personally is that, you know, as an anarchist, I think that the state is basically just the mafia with a flag. And um, as to what the alternative to that is, the ter alternative is to expand the realm of civil society and voluntary cooperation and voluntary association and individual sovereignty to the greatest degree possible. Now, the problem that comes in is what, what happens when you have warring tribes that are in conflict with each other. Well, preferably you you separate them as much as possible, or uh, or they set they they self separate as much as possible, uh, and then there's hopefully some kind of detente, or and they have a mutually constraining effect on each other. Uh, and as a general rule, that's a, probably about as good as it's going to get. Keith, you mentioned uh, what would happen with the nuclear weapons in uh, Russia if the Russian state imploded. Uh, I'd be interested to know what you think might happen if one of the sort of more developed gangs around the world, or uh, even the ones that may potentially appear in Russia, uh, what, what, what would happen if they had nuclear weapons? Would they then by de facto just become the state because they have nukes? Uh, and how would they, I mean, this might be slightly off topic a little bit, but I'm, I was wondering what might we expect them to to do? Because... Uh, this kind of gets into whether or not the leaders of the street gangs are sort of rational actors, because you go to sort of, oh, well, you know, uh, Rocket Man, Kim Jong-un, he's kind of crazy. Oh, uh, well, this is a popular perception of him, which I think is untrue. Um, you know, we're going to get nuked because he's mental and he's going to nuke everybody. Um, so I, I think you might go down a similar way uh, with, with the street gangs. But I, I just interested, what do you think would happen if a street gang got hold of nukes? or a more developed gang rather than the street gang as, as such, if you've seen my point. Yeah, well, you know, I think that the mafia having nukes, like I think the Gambino crime family having nukes, wouldn't be any different than the state having nukes. You know, it, it would, you know, like let's say the Italian mafia had nukes, okay? Well, that, how, that, that differs from Russia having nukes or America having nukes or China having nukes or... North Korea or Israel having nukes, exactly how? I don't know that it would. Um, you know, the, the Italian mafia are self-interested actors, very self-interested actors, uh, and so they're going to do what's in their self-interest. And you know, the reason we haven't had a nuclear war yet, in the uh, even with the advent of nuclear weapons, is because uh, the various entities around the world that have nuclear weapons under their control know that it's not in their self-interest to have a nuclear war. 
and and that would be just as true of, of organized crime, uh, you know, in the, in the conventional sense, as any state. Uh, what I would be most concerned about when it comes to somebody actually launching a nuclear first strike would be some sort of religious nut that gets control of a particular state somewhere and thinks that they're going to go to heaven or whatever if they launch a nuclear strike, or somebody who basically wants to carry out one big murder-suicide, you know, like these cases you hear about where some psychopath, you know, shoots his wife and kids and then commits suicide. Uh, what if a guy like that became uh, a head of state somewhere? Uh, I think those are the two dangers um, that are presented when it comes to nuclear weapons. You know, religious fanaticism or just individual psychopathy. Um, I don't, you know, mo mo so far we haven't experienced that yet, you know, when it comes to nukes. If we ever do, that might be the end. But, uh, but I tend to agree with Martin Van Crevel, who argued that, ironically, the advent of nukes has had the effect of reducing war between states because it raised the cost of war to the point where it's cost prohibitive. Uh, you know, every, you know, every state, I mean, you know, when the Soviet Union had nukes with, with when Leonid Brezhnev and Alexei Kosygin were in power, they didn't use them. Mao Zedong, he had nukes as crazy as he was, he didn't use them. Uh, the North Koreans, the Kims, they haven't used them. The Israelis, you know, as fanatical Zionist as they are, they haven't used them. The United States, even with the, its megalomania, uh, well, except for the H-bomb in Japan, ha hasn't Use, use nukes yet. So uh, it does seem that nukes have a constraining effect on the different parties involved. Uh, and I, I don't see organized crime being different. Like I said, what I worry about more would be uh, religious fanaticism or just individuals with a murder-suicide impulse. Um, Keith, where would you put organized crime within the global power elites? Do you think that they're somewhere towards the top, the middle, the bottom? Is there anyone who's kind of like close to anywhere on the top? Or do you think to a large extent uh, anybody who is towards the top of the power elite must be some sort of state adjacent factor? Um, or so, so where do you think they, that they fit? Well... I think that it gets back to what I was saying earlier about the way that the institutions are structured. You know, I organized crime, you know, formal organized crime groups, depending on what they are, have different levels of influence. Um, you know, you, you have a, a layered system, you know, just like internationally, for example, you have different countries with different levels of power. Like an, an analogy I like to make there is, is, is also to organized crime. You compare organized crime in countries. Um, if you look at the, uh, in the United States, if you look at organized crime, the, the Italian uh, mafia families are among the elite of organized crime. And they've declined in influence somewhat in recent decades. But when, when they were at their pinnacle, they were the elite of organized crime. And then they had a governing commission that's just called the commission. And then the largest um, five, the five families of New York, the uh, Bonanos, Colombos, Lachises, Genovese's, and Gambinos, they each had a seat on the commission, which was the governing body of the mafia. And then you also had lesser crime families that tended to be aligned with different 
uh, crime families. For example, you had the Cavalcantes that were based in New Jersey. The Sopranos TV show was actually based on them. Uh, they were aligned with some of the five families. Uh, you had the Vegas Mafia. You had the Chicago Mafia. Um, you know, you had these other the Scarfo crime family. Uh, some of the, some of these others were would be aligned with different crime families on the commission, but they weren't commission members. And then you would also have alliances between mob, mafia families and more working class or lower class organized crime. For instance, you would have a relationship between the some of the outlaw motorcycle gangs and various mafia families or between various street gangs and mafia families. You'd also see wars between them. For example, famously, the Pagans Motorcycle Club and the Scarfo crime family went to war in Philadelphia in the 70s and 80s over who was going to control methamphetamine rackets. Um, you, of course, these groups go to war with each other at every level. Different, you know, different five families have gone to war with each other. Different bike clubs have gone to war with each other. Street gangs go to war with each other. And it works the same way on an international level with countries. You know, the, the UN is like the commission, the UN Security Council with its five permanent members. That's like the commission. They're like the, the bosses of you know, global organized crime. Um, and then you've got, you know, the, the lesser powers, you know, say Germany, Japan, whatever. They don't have seats on the commission, but they're still aligned with the uh, major uh, powers. And then further down, you've got, you know, the Pakistanis or the Iranians or the Saudi Arabians. And, you know, there's all these shifting alliances with the dominant centers of power or, or with each other. And, and then there's conflict with each other. Uh, and it's no different when it comes to, you know, the relationship between organized crime and different sectors of the of the power elite. I, I, I tend to say think that every nation state has a system of organized crime that's intertwined with the state at every level. Uh, and not just the state, but other institutions as well. Um, many other institutions. Um, and at, at an international level, I would say that the state, the governments of different countries, transnational corporations, transnational financial institutions, and transnational criminal organizations are all interconnected as well. Uh, for instance, banks, some of the most elite prominent banks make tons of money laundering money from drug trafficking, arms trafficking, probably human trafficking, all kinds of things. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's not that organized crime has any unique or special set of powers. It's just one of multiple institutions that intersect with each other. That sounds entirely plausible, Keith. Um, I'd like to thank you for joining us again. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I'd like to thank everyone else for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends and family and subscribe to us on Podbean and on YouTube. The more subscribers we get, the higher we get in the search rankings and the more people can access this material. And if you'd like to contact the show for any reason at all, please contact us at mindcrimelibertyshow at gmail.com. That's mindcrimelibertyshow at gmail.com. Music.